Before we study the word, I just I feel uh, led to have a prayer this morning for our country and for this um, discussion about Syria. This is a very volatile thing that's going on right now, and uh, our leaders really need a lot of wisdom. Whatever your political leaning is, we, we know that the Lord controls nations, right? And we know that he's the one who can give wisdom where it's not. And uh, this, is, this is something that touches some of our families in the church uh, who have kids in the military. And uh, it just is, is an interesting situation uh, throughout our world this morning. We know what Bible says about Israel. We know how God is going to work in the end. Uh, but this is, this is something we need to pray about. So let's bow together, and I want to encourage you as I'm praying in your heart to pray too, um, and let's really put this before the Lord and ask Him to work. Father, we thank You this morning for our nation. We thank You for how You have worked throughout the world in spreading the gospel from the days of Acts 2, how it has spread to every nation and every tongue and every tribe. But Lord, so often as... Humans, we fall back into our own self-sufficiency and our own ways. And Lord, there is wickedness in the world this morning uh, to the level that we can barely imagine. We ask you this morning to have your hand in this situation in what's going on in Syria, Lord, and to give world leaders, including our own president and our Congress, wisdom today. Not wisdom of their own volition, not wisdom of their political leanings, but wisdom from heaven, Lord about what would be best. And we pray that you would stop this awful genocide that's going on. We pray that you would hinder the work of the enemy, Lord, as you are so much stronger than him and always will be. We pray that you would hinder his work in causing murder and causing all this uh, problem that is throughout the Middle East. Lord, we pray that you would protect Israel. You tell us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Lord, we do that this morning. We pray for Israel that you love, that you would protect them and guard them. And Lord, we pray for all the children of this congregation and all the people of this congregation that are in the military, that you would put your hand around them, Lord, that you would guard them, not only physically, but that you'd guard their hearts and you'd give them a great witness to those soldiers that they're around and their commanders, that the light of the gospel would shine through them. Lord, we ask you to be in the situation this week and to show what is right and that our leaders would yield to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids, you may be distressed. Let's take our Bibles. Our study this morning is back in 1 Peter. As we finish our kind of quick overview of this very important book, throughout our studies over the last 10 weeks, we've established that the theme of this book, or at least the one we've set up, is becoming a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. And this book is very direct, and it's very practical, and it goes right to the heart of issues that we tend to struggle to sanctify in our lives. It, it, It really gets down to the core of the issues that we wrestle with. And we left off last week at the end of chapter 4 with Peter writing about... uh The fact that our character and our commitment has to be tested at times to prove it and to make sure that we really are walking with the Lord. And that includes when we suffer. And we talked about sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And that really requires, as we go through that, a new way of thinking. Because we usually focus, when we talk about Christ 
and his crucifixion on the physical agony that he endured and, and the, the unexplainable, ununderstandable weight of sin that was placed on him. But there's really a third factor, and the third factor is the suffering of being God in flesh and yet having to lay aside his rights to go to the cross. Now, Philippians 2 talks a lot about this, where it says that Jesus emptied himself. In other words, he voluntarily chose not to exercise his full power. He voluntarily chose not to exercise his full rights as God, especially as they're binding him and putting him on the cross and nailing through his arms and through his feet, and they're mocking him as he has the crown of thorns and the the blood is dripping and his body is torn apart. And I mean, we can't fathom the suffering that he went through physically. But as he's doing that, he still had the ability at any point to say, no, stop, I'm God and you can't do this. And yet he emptied himself and laid aside his rights and humbled himself, Philippians says, and became obedient even to death on the cross. Now, nobody forced him to do that. He was under no obligation to go to the cross. Jesus didn't have to die for our sins. He didn't have to sacrifice for us. He didn't have to be the one who was the, who was the substitutionary sacrifice. He could have said, you chose to sin. I gave the law. You rebelled against it. And you're going to have to die for it. He could have done that. But this shows how great his love and his mercy is, doesn't it? That instead of doing that, he volunteered and gave his life and pushed aside his rights so that he would go to the cross for us. Compelled by his love for all mankind, compelled by his mercy that we can't possibly understand or appreciate to the fullest level, he chose to do it. Now that's an important principle for us as believers, because we're told in the same passage in Philippians 2 to have the same mind as Christ. To follow His example. To share in His sufferings. Now that doesn't just mean dealing with spiritual opposition and dealing with persecution like the believers that Peter's writing to were facing. It also means voluntarily sharing in the deliberate action of laying aside our rights to yield to the Holy Spirit. Now let me say that again, because that's a lot of words, and I want to make sure we get it right. Christ chose to voluntarily lay aside His rights, His full right as God, and to go to the cross to sacrifice for us. And then He calls us to do the same thing. So part of the suffering that we talked about last week is is wrestling against ourself. And the suffering then is that it's hard to lay aside our rights for the point of yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit, but that's what we're called to do. And that impacts our heart for ministry, and it impacts our love for the Lord and for each other. Because if our lives are about us, if my life is about me, and your life is about you, then there is no way we're going to please the Lord. Now that's the baseline principle for our study this morning, Because our commission, not just as disciples, but as mature disciples, is to walk by the Spirit. It's to serve the Lord, to spread His gospel, and it's to love each other. Now, if we're not doing that, if if we're living for ourselves, 
and we're shirking our calling and we're loving only us and not anybody else, how many think the Lord's going to bless that? There's no way God will approve, God will bless, God will be pleased if our lives are about us. That's why he says we've got to share in the sufferings of the Lord, which is to be humble and selfless. And to do that, one thing must be eliminated. Our pride has to be put to death. Now, Peter calls us to do that in the text of the morning. And we're going to take this whole chapter this morning and really just concentrate on a couple things. But chapter 5 of 1 Peter, let's start in verse 1 and we'll kind of go through and understand what Peter's telling us. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and as a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, conclusion of the last thought, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are be accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanius, our feathered brother, for so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, this closing part of the letter was personal because these readers who are facing opposition and threats are still being called to serve the Lord and to bring glory to him and not to themselves. Now, that message hadn't gotten through in some places, places like Corinth and and to a minor extent Galatia and Ephesus and Thessalonica, because in those places, some of the leadership was carnal. We know in Corinth especially that the leadership was, was really living for themselves, promoting themselves, that that had filtered down into the congregation, that everybody was fighting and arguing and, and disputing about gifts and, and not showing love to each other and saying, I'm better than you because I'm aligned with... So-. It was just an absolute mess. So Peter writes to these believers and says, listen, you don't have that advantage of being in one place. You're scattered. This letter is going to go from point to point. But I want to tell you, the same principle applies. You need to stand firm for the Lord. And after talking about a variety of subjects throughout this book, he now gets to this final section. And part of it is about leadership in the church, and part of it is about how we are all supposed to live. Now, he kind of writes the first section to, to me, because he's saying, in terms of leadership, I've appointed overseers in each church to, to shepherd the flock and to teach the flock. That's the meaning of the word elder here. It's interchangeable with pastor and shepherd and teacher. So he writes to them and he says, 
Listen, to those of you that are serving, you have one prerequisite. It's right here in, uh, try to see which verse it is, if I could find it. It's to serve with humility. There it is in verse 5. To serve with humility. In other words, the leadership needs to be humble. The leadership needs to be sacrificial in terms of how it acts. We'll talk about that more in a second. But I want to tell you, this, this principle is so wonderful and this principle is so so strong that it, that it really has application beyond leadership and it goes to anybody that serves within the church. I was so gratified the other day because I was making a list of all the people that serve in this church in some capacity. And it was over 80 people for a church our size. That's phenomenal. We have 53 people that just serve in some capacity on Sunday morning, just in children's ministry. Now, that's wonderful, and that's exemplary, and that's unusual. But here's the calling that we have to anybody who serves. And this starts with leadership, staff, deacons, ministry team leaders, prayer band, choir. That This starts with us, but it also goes to anybody that serves. The example that we're given is to serve with humility. Now, if you're seen in any capacity, if you're serving in a way where people see it, it will never represent the Lord well or the church well if there's arrogance, right? If there's obvious self-interest in the way we serve, nobody's going to want to come to that church. Imagine if people walked in this morning. Imagine there's a, there's a guest that walks in this morning and, and everywhere they went, people are kind of like this. Or, or people were just, they talked in hushed tones to each other. Didn't greet the person, didn't say hi. Nobody had any interaction with them. During the greeting time, they just went and talked to their own friends. And they were arrogant about it. And, and they treated you poorly when they, when you took your kid to be, to be taken into a class. And they kind of treated you like a snob or they were harsh to you. Imagine, would that person want to come back to that church? I mean, you expect that kind of treatment in a French restaurant, right? But you don't expect it in a church. This should be a place that welcomes people. It should be a place where there's humility and people are joyful. I sat in my office a couple minutes before the service praying, and I'm hearing people in the hallway joyful and greeting each other and talking to children and interact. And I said, that's what the church is. Not arrogance, not pride, not, not don't bother coming around here because this is our little club. But listen, this is the greatest source of trouble in any church. And it's the temptation that the enemy wants to instill in every single corner of this building. Because he knows how much it will destroy the body. So Peter says to us, leaders, it starts with you. You have to serve with the right motive. You have to serve with humility. You have to shepherd in the right way. And then I want to tell you this morning, this, this filters down to every single person in this congregation. Look what it says. There are three principles here in the first part of the chapter. He says, one, don't serve out of obligation. Don't serve out of obligation. Don't serve with a bad attitude. Oh, I can't believe I've got to teach again this week. Oh, I can't believe choir is back. Now we've got to sing every week. Come on a Monday night. Or I can't believe I'm on the assignment to, to teach kids today. No, if that's our attitude, that's... The wrong attitude. And it's going to show and it's going to discourage people around us. And what it will do is it will cause us to be uptight and to be stressed. And leadership can't show that condition of the heart. 
The concept of the shepherd here that he uses is so important, especially as it relates to the pastor and to other staff, because a shepherd needs to be strong but caring. They need to protect the flock. They need to lead the flock, and they need to feed the flock. Not out of compulsion. I don't want to be up here this morning thinking, oh, i got to crank out another sermon. I, I, I do this because God's called me to it, and because, frankly, I love it. And isn't that what we want as we serve? We want to be doing it because we love it, not because we have to. How many know that's true? I don't want to show up this morning and think, oh, I've got to preach. No, this is, this is the best part of the week. Loving to serve, not doing it out of compulsion, not doing it forcefully. Second, he says, leadership has to be sacrificial, which is why he warns against greed and selfish agendas and says we should be eager to serve people. Notice the phrase. It says, sordid gain. That's a, that's a base desire to have more than everybody else and to be in control. Now, where does this show up in the church? This shows up in the church in little kingdoms that we build. Little, little kingdoms that we build where we have power and where we, where we can, can do what we want rather than the call that is here, which is to be sacrificial and to be quick to serve each other. Now, when we look at verse four and his reminder that there is a chief shepherd that we all serve, it's hard to defend all our little mini kingdoms. Jesus has a kingdom. When Jesus was on earth, he had a kingdom that he was establishing. But what did he do? Did he walk around saying, well, I'm the king. I'm Lord. I'm the one you have to follow. Why would you even? No, he didn't do that. What did he do? He had compassion on people. And he took time for them. Even as the disciples are saying, listen, Jesus, take some time for yourself. Listen, enough with these people. Enough with these little kids that keep coming up to you. Listen, tell the crowds to go away. We're hungry. Come on, Lord. Let's go. Enough already with the ministry. It's been 12, 14 hours today. We're done. Jesus says, no. Don't send the crowds away. Have them sit down. Got any food? No, there's another person that needs ministry. There's another piece, person that needs encouragement. There's a person that's sick. We need to heal them. There, there, there's somebody, there's a demoniac right there, and they're going crazy. No, disciples, it's, it's not time to think about ourselves. We need to minister to people. Listen, serving the Lord requires sacrifice. I've been doing ministry 27 years, and I'm telling you right now, it is not easy. But it can't breed resentment and an attitude that we have to serve. We get to serve the Lord. We get to serve each other. How amazing would it be if we had that mindset? How amazing would it be if we said in our minds every time, how can I serve you? That would be a church like no other since Acts 2. And it would honor the Lord because he lived that way. Third thought. The third principle of spiritual leadership is it has to be by example. We must be genuinely proving ourselves every day in holiness and humility and self-denial and spiritual maturity and personal maturity and joy. There should be a modeling of sacrifice and humility for the flock. But listen, that's contrary to much of what's happening in Christianity in 2013. In fact, there are now some pastors that are telling their congregation, 
When I walk in a room, you have to stand. There is even a very prominent pastor who has a rider whenever he comes to speak in a place, like he's a, like he's a rock star. He has a rider that says, I'm the only one that can start a conversation and don't look at me when I talk. Now, that, that, that's out there. And that's a long way, isn't it, from Jesus kneeling and washing the disciples' feet. It doesn't sound much to me like sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And yet, listen, that distortion of thought can happen very quickly. That's why the Holy Spirit writes through Peter. Oh, I love this verse even more after this week. Look at verse 5. He says, here's how we combat that. Clothe yourselves with humility. Now, that carries a very strong mental picture, a a very strong visual image, especially in the first century context, because clothing back then was designed to keep you modest. I know, it's a shocking thought, right? Clothing was designed to keep you modest with robes and cloaks and material that covered more of the body. I think we can safely assume that nobody in first century Turkey looked like people waiting in line at Six Flags. I mean, when you look at how people dress, especially in summer, it, it's, it's stunning. But we're so used to it now, I think sometimes it doesn't even bug us. But, but clothing, when Peter writes this, was designed to cover your body and to limit self-exposure. Now, take that thought and apply it into the spiritual teaching of verse 5 because he tells all of us, every one of us, to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Now, three parts to that. The first part is we have to clothe ourselves with humility. In other words, don't wait for everybody else to be humble before you're going to be humble. It starts only with you. Don't sit there and say, well, I'll humble myself when everybody else does because because everybody's so arrogant and I'm really not that arrogant, so I'm just going to wait till everybody calms down and then I'm going to do it. No, that's not what the command is. The command is clothe yourself with humility. That means your heart is right with the Lord. That means that we're spirit-filled so pride doesn't creep back in. It is an intentional, purposeful action of self-denial that I want to cover my pride. Not hide it, but get rid of it. In other words, I don't want it to be exposed. I don't want people to ever see the pride that's within me that I'm trying to crucify daily. I want that to be hidden. The less people see of me, the better. He must increase and I must do what? Decrease. In other words, people shouldn't see Paul Rhodes. They shouldn't see you. They should see Christ. So the only way that's going to happen is if we cover ourselves with humility. Not as a fraud, not as, well, I'm going to play a part and look like I'm humble, but I'm really a jerk. No, that's not what he's saying here. Cover yourself, bathe yourself in humility. And that's the second thought. The only trait we should cover ourselves with is humility. Somebody might say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Or what about Jesus and us? Listen, if we are genuinely humble, people will see nothing but the Holy Spirit. 
If we are humble in our heart, they will see Jesus in us because Jesus was marked by humility and we're told to have the same mind that Jesus did. So when we are humble, people will say, I see the presence and the influence of Jesus in that person. And the opposite's true. If we're about ourselves, they are never going to see the Lord. You want to have a strong witness for Christ? You want your words to have impact when you tell somebody, I'd love for you to come to church with me this week. Then model Jesus. Because if we don't model Jesus and we're about ourselves, they're never going to see him. Look at the third thought. The focus of this clothing with humility is not for our benefit. It's not so people will say, wow, look at that Rhodes. He is so humble. And I go, yes, you're right. I really am, aren't I? Isn't it great how humble I am? Aren't you proud? I'm so proud of how humble I am. Being clothed with humility is not for us. Because if it's for us, that's the opposite of humility. Instead, he says, it's to be humble. Look at the last three words. Toward one another. In other words, it's to be about everybody but me. So all the preparation to teach and preach, all the setup that's done to make the service happen, all the crafts that are prepared for the kids, all the time spent holding babies, all the songs that are rehearsed over and over, all the cleaning done by the KLH team, all the prayer that's prayed, it is all for the purpose of serving and edifying one another so we will all together grow and mature in the Lord. It is not about us. And anything that is not done with that spirit and that intent for our, that it's not for ourselves, the Lord will not bless it. So we have to take very seriously and be very on guard about how we talk, how we act, our body language, our looks on our faces, what we represent. Because when it starts to be about us, the work of the Lord is hindered. But when we are here to love Him and praise Him and serve Him and magnify Him and then to love and encourage each other and to minister to each other and to edify each other and to strengthen those who are coming in who are hurting and who are weak or those who don't know the Lord, when we're focused on them, oh, that's what the church is supposed to be. So often the church drifts back into, what do I get out of it? The hardest part of this command, look back at the verse, to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. The hardest part of that command is that we are all narcissists in some way. We all want attention. We all want affirmation. And there really isn't anything inherently wrong with that because it's a basic human need. But as it relates to ministry, that cannot be our motive. Because if our motive in ministry is I want people to see me or I want people to affirm me or I want people to say, wow, pastor, you did a great job preaching this week. And I appreciate when you encourage me that way. But honestly, I don't know what to say after it. So don't think I'm ignoring you or being awkward. I just I don't know how to respond to that because it can't be about me. If the Lord speaks, praise his name. If I speak, we're all in trouble. 
So I have to prepare my heart. I have to say, Lord, even to the time I'm walking up, Lord, get me out of the way. This needs to be your word. Anoint this word this morning. And and don't let anybody see me. Please don't ever let anybody see me. And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. I can tell you the times. We have to serve without a desire for people to see us. Because that's a selfish motive. That's why Peter says, look at it. If you're looking for your reward now, verse 4, if you're looking for your reward now, forget it. The true reward is going to come when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears. Then he will give us a crown of glory that will say, you served with the right heart and the right motive. But here's the problem. The enemy doesn't play fair in this process. He doesn't want us to think eternally. He wants us to resist this word from the Lord and to live in the here and now. And he knows that when our choices are made by our emotions and by our desires, we usually choose wrong. So the devil's constant push against us is against clothing ourselves with humility toward one another. He wants to lie to us and get us to believe that things are unfair, that people get more attention, and that they aren't held to the same standard we are, and that they get more credit than we do, and, and that they, they, they have better approval. I mean, he's constantly pushing this. I've seen it with many people in this congregation. I've seen it with myself. Oh, why don't, you know, I'm, I'm not as good as the other person and, and, and look at them and they, everybody thinks they're awesome and they don't think I'm, I mean, I've seen this with so many of us. And it's the enemy attacking us and saying, focus on the here and now rather than, oh, the chief shepherd is coming and he's got a crown ready for you. If you serve with the right motive and it's not about you, the Lord's coming to place a crown on your head. Can we fathom that thought? I mean, really, can we fathom that thought that Jesus is a crown just for us? We deserve nothing. But he says, oh, if you serve the right way, it will be my pleasure to approve you. But this is the battle. These deceptions build very deep resentment and it can make us bitter and critical and it can lead us to a very dangerous question that not only drives us from ministry, but drives us away from the Lord. Because if we have a perceived imbalance in our heart, we start to ask, even internally, well, why should I be the one to sacrifice? Why should I be the one to be humble? Why should I be the one to serve the Lord? Why should I be the one who makes the effort? Why doesn't everybody else have to do it too? And if I do this, who's going to look after me? Who's going to satisfy my need to be noticed and appreciated? And here's the danger of that question. We don't realize just how full of pride that question is. It seems justifiable. And it even seems right in some circumstances. But the deception is by asking it, we're forgetting who and why we're serving. Ministry is not for you and it's not for me. It's to bring honor and glory to the Lord. Ministry is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ 
It is to show people the love of the Lord. It is to extend grace and mercy to them. It is to show them that a life lived for Jesus Christ is a life that is completely transformed and completely different from how the world lives. So our sacrifice in ministry is to bring Him glory. Now with that in mind, and with Christ as our example, the Spirit gives us a great spiritual principle in verse 6. And this is a continuation of the thought in verse 5. He says, therefore, that's the, that's the extension of the last thought, therefore, humble yourselves. In other words, we have to take the initiative. This is a voluntary and, and, and intentional action. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. In other words, there's a cause and effect relationship. Think of it like a, like a teeter-totter on a playground. When one goes up, the other goes where? Down. One side goes up, the other side goes down. Back and forth. So if we exalt ourselves, where have we put the Lord? There is no way that both of us can be exalted at the same time. There's no way that we can say, give me some credit, but also give the Lord some credit. God's not going to share credit. He's the only one who gets credit. So we can't be exalted and then have him be exalted. That's why verse 5 is so important, because it challenges us not to block Jesus from getting the glory that only he deserves. But just the opposite's true. When he is exalted, there is no place for us to go but down. And that's what the enemy pushes and says, you don't want to be there. No, come on. God, God needs to give you some props. People, people need to give you some affirmation. You're, you're serving the Lord. How dare God take all the glory? You're the one laboring. You're the one serving. You're the one giving your time. You're the one holding the baby. You're the one scrubbing the floor. You're the one doing the practice. No, you need some glory too. God says, ah, that's not how it works. I must be at the top. And when you're at the bottom, that's where I want you because now you're humble before me. But I'm telling you, I'm going to pay you back. Trust me, I will. He gives us the choice. Fully equips us to deny ourselves and clothe ourselves with humility. It's not natural for us, but you and I don't walk by the natural man anymore. We walk by the Spirit of God. So this is going to be... So so if there's going to be unity and peace in the body, from leadership down through the congregation, it begins with this. If this is absent, if we're not clothed with humility and serving with humility and placing God above everything, there's going to be turmoil, there's going to be misunderstandings, there's going to be fighting, there's going to be pain, there's going to be disunity. And the work of the gospel and the work of ministry will be stunted. And people who come to church looking for Jesus will be left wanting. Because they need to hear about the Lord. They want to learn about the Lord. They want to grow. And if all they're seeing and hearing is us, we have drastically failed in our assignment for the Lord. So how important is it for us, look at the verses again, to clothe ourselves with humility and to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God again and again and again and again. Listen, if there is one calling that we have this fall, if we are going to be mature disciples of Jesus Christ, It is this. There will be new programs. There will be new opportunities. There will be new relationships. 
but all of them will be absolutely useless unless we're humble and sacrificial toward each other. I don't care how many dinner groups we form. I don't care how many people serve in Awana. I don't care about serving 9.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It matters not. None of it will work unless we are humble and sacrificial toward each other. Because the reality is the Lord can't and will not bless anything that's designed to promote our pride. In fact, he even says in verse 5, I oppose the proud. I only give grace to those or humble. Now, there's not a lot of equivocation in that verse. There's no wiggle room to say, well, yes, God opposes the proud, except when it's justified. God opposes the proud, except when he realizes how much I am hurting and how much that, that people aren't noticing me and how much somebody's not been right to me. So, so, yes, he won't oppose that. He'll only oppose the people that are really proud. No, that's not what the verse says. God opposes pride. He stands against it. Not passively, not kind of going, look at that crazy Christian. Oh, what am I going to do with them? The meaning of the word here is to resist and do battle against. In other words, when God, when he, when he sniffs that scent of hell, that pride, he walks over and he gets his battle gear on. So I'm going to deal with that. I'm not going to let it slide. I'm not going to just say, well, I don't know, I'll give him some time. When, when I sniff pride, I'm getting my war materials on. I'm going to combat that and I'm going to fight it and I'm going to resist it because it can't exist. God will constantly refine our lives. He will constantly refine our church when he sees pride. Now, the good thing about this text is it doesn't end there. In a case we feel like this is all work and no benefit and this is too heavy, there's an amazing promise that the Lord gives at the end of verse 6. And we're going to end with this. It says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might tell me the next phrase. Come on, say it stronger. It's a great promise. Exalt you at the proper time. Now, the second part of that sentence makes absolutely no sense if God isn't gracious. The second part of that sentence logically should read, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God because he's God and you're nothing and you're his servant, so be quiet. That's how it should read. Logically, if God's not gracious... There's no way the second part of that sentence exists. And the fact that it is there, the fact that it is what the Holy Spirit prompted Peter to write, tells us about the incredible magnitude of God's love and mercy. Because not only does he not crush us, which he could, and not only does he just say, all right, fine, uh, you just exist, which he could, he actually rewards our humility. He actually brings us to a place that only He deserves. Listen now, He exalts us. There you go, there's no way. I, I, why would God exalt me? Because He sees in us what He is made of. And He says, oh, when you're humble like Jesus, oh, that's when I'm going to exalt you. 
I know you've waited and I know you've been hurt and I know people haven't been right and you don't get credit. But listen, I'm going to exalt you. You just keep going. Just keep striving and I will exalt you. Our culture spends so much time and money promoting itself, emphasizing narcissism and self-importance as the highest values, but it is hollow and it is shallow and it is temporary. If you don't believe that, just think about the biggest entertainment stories of the past week. Miley Cyrus's little dance and whether Ben Affleck makes a good Batman. You think by Christmas anybody will care about that? The crowd is fickle and fame is fleeting, which is why wanting to be exalted here is foolish. If we want to know how to live and what to value, we should just do the opposite of the, what the world tells us to do. Because the world is about pride, and it says right here in our Bibles, God is opposed to pride, but when we are humble, look at His plan. At the right time, for the right reasons, He will exalt us as an example of someone who's transformed by His mercy. So the line between humility and pride is really the defining point of our character because it affects how we act and react. Look at verse 7. He says, now, because of this, cast your anxiety on me. Do we do that? In humble appreciation for all he has done for us and knowing with confidence his goodness and his faithfulness and his provision? Or do we hold on to it through some strange act of pride? I heard a pastor say the other day that proud churches never pray because pride and prayer never go together. That's true because there's no need for prayer when you're full of yourself. If you're self-sufficient, you don't need to go to the Lord and ask him for help because you got it covered. That's why we're going to emphasize prayer even more and more and more this fall and winter because we need to stay humble before the Lord and we need to cast our anxiety on Him because He cares for us. Carrying around our anxiety will never be good. And we can't defend it. And we can't tell the Lord all the reasons why it's why why I need to be concerned and Lord I need to hold on to this because you just don't understand how important this is and, and, and you're not getting it and, and I can't throw it. No, he says, throw it away from you, get it away from you, and give it to me. Why? Here's the only reason I'm telling you that you can do this, because I love you. I love you. And and, and if and if you don't understand that, that you don't really know me. I love you, and you can trust me. And I'm the only one who can take care of your problem. If you're feeling pain, you're feeling pressure, if your past haunts you, then give it to me. No, don't argue. Don't argue. Give it to me. Because I care about you more than you will ever know. And while you're doing that, look at the last verse. We're going to pray. He says, guard your heart and mind. Be alert for the attack of the enemy. Not just with temptation of sin. We know what that looks like. But even more dangerous, the temptation to live for yourself and be full of pride. Listen, that is the attack. I am convinced over the last eight, nine months, that's been the attack on our church. I am convinced that's been the attack on individual hearts. And Peter says, here's how you're going to defend yourself. Be firm in your faith. Why? Because faith is directed away from ourselves. It's trusting the Lord instead of trusting myself. 
I was thinking late last night about the old hymn where the writer says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We sang it this morning. I didn't realize that we were singing that this morning. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The old hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand. Say it with me if you know it. All other ground is sinking sand. He says, you want to know how to defend yourself against the temptation to be full of pride and to feel sorry for yourself and to be all stressed out and caught up? Put your hope in the Lord because he not only has you covered and he's not only faithful and he's not only sufficient and he'll not only provide, but if you keep trusting in him, he's got a crown waiting for you. He's going to exalt you. Don't look for it here. It's not happening here. Don't, don't, listen, listen, don't, don't worry about what people say. I know that's easier said than done, but we've got to do it more. Don't worry about their approval. Worry about my approval. And I'm telling you, I'll exalt you. And when that happens, the promise of God is Jesus himself will perfect and confirm and strengthen And establish you. That's the goal. Maturity as a disciple. Where Jesus says. Well done. I approve. I'm proud of you. I'm going to exalt you. Because you've served. As Jesus served. Let's close our eyes. The greatest threat. To this. Is pride. And we have to sacrifice pride at the altar of God's grace every single day. We have to ask God for his help. We have to ask God to change our hearts. We have to ask God to humble us. So that we are not controlled by what we want. Lord, you know how hard that is for us. We don't say that as an excuse. We say it as our reality. It is so hard for us. And yet, Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit and you have fully equipped us to walk as Jesus walked, to live in humility, to have the same mind that he had, Lord, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, which is reasonable. Transform our minds, transform our thinking. Renew us away from our pride. Back to the humility that we showed the day we admitted our sins and asked you to forgive us. Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation and the joy of ministry and the joy of just being your disciple. We ask you to do this work, Lord, not for us, but because you will get glory. And Lord, you're the only one who deserves it. We pray that you would use us as a church in a powerful way this fall, that our hearts would be softened before you and that we would serve you and love you with humility. Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you've already done and what you're going to do. You are a gracious and loving 
and merciful God. And Lord, we love you. We praise you this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen.